Powering Africa is key to the continent being able to hit its development goals. So what shifts need to be triggered to make sure the continent's economic future doesn't short-circuit? We find out this week. I'm Alicia Sekum and you're watching Africa Inc. According to World Bank estimates, around 600 million Africans in sub-Saharan Africa are being kept in the dark. On average, grid access rates in African countries are sitting at just 20%, and with that, the electricity deficit becomes a major stumbling block to African nations achieving desired growth, with lack of productivity and cost of productivity knocking their competitive edge. So, at a time where Africa is being seen as an untapped treasure trove for future growth by many investors, how do countries go about keeping pace with the increasing demand for electricity? Senior Energy Advisor at the New Partnership for Africa's development, Professor Mossad El-Messiri, is going to take us through some of the strategy being tabled in light of the fourth industrial revolution. CEO of Botswana Power Corporation, Stefan Swarsfischer, brings us up to speed with how it's looking to tackle its power issues and how far they are in becoming self-sufficient. And with renewable energy a largely untapped space in Africa, boasting massive investment potential, just how much a part of the energy mix is it really becoming? Karin Surridge Talbot from the Renewable Energy Center of Research and Development will be taking us through that. But first, I'm going to hand over to Bronwyn to outline where things stand right now. Thanks, Alicia. Well, just more than half of Africa's population has access to electricity. And while that's an improvement from 45% in 2014, more needs to be done as access to affordable, reliable and sustainable power is essential not only to the continent's population, but to the industries that drive economic growth as well. There is a direct correlation between economic growth and electricity supply. Research from McKinsey and Company shows that electrification rates of less than 80% of the population, as is the case for Africa, shows a consistent reduction in GDP per capita. So development in the sector is crucial. From a demand perspective, it's projected that sub-Saharan Africa will consume nearly 1,600 terawatt hours by 2040. That's four times what was used in 2010. Reasons for this is economic growth and a doubling of the population, where urbanization is happening at a rapid rate. So demand is high and growing. On the supply side, analysts suggest that the continent needs to take advantage of all the potential power generation capacity that Africa has to offer. Solar alone would add a potential 10 terawatts of capacity, and there is potential for about 400 gigawatts of gas-generated power. That's with Mozambique, Nigeria and Tanzania alone, representing 60% of that total capacity. It then begs the question, if demand is high and the continent provides rich natural resources, why is Africa still being left in the dark? Some say it's down to political will. Others say that it's the need for private players to now get involved in the space and pick up the slack. Alicia, your guests will be weighing in on this, so I'll hand it back to you. Thanks for that, Bronwyn. Well, with reports suggesting that only 40% of Africans enjoy reliable power supply, we catch up with NEPAD to take a closer look at what needs to be done for countries to start upping the ante. Stay tuned.
Inadequate infrastructure development still poses significant challenge to doing business on the continent. And chief amongst the deficits plaguing competitive advantage and growth is haphazard power supply as countries struggle to keep up with growing demand. So at a time when Africa is trying to industrialize to hit its development goals, to what extent is inefficient energy project development impeding the continent's ability to keep up with the fourth industrial revolution? Senior energy advisor at the new partnership of African development Professor Mossad El Mesiri joins me in studio now with his perspective. Mossad, thanks so much for your time today. So, we know that Africa's industrialization can only happen if countries have robust enough an energy base, and we know that that robust energy base is lacking at this stage. So, bottom line, how much is an inadequate base costing the continent despite industrialization ranking a top priority? Thank you very much for that actual question. First of all, let me touch on what you said, robust and solid energy source. It's not only actually solid and robust energy source. That energy source has to be accessible, has to be available, has to be reliable and affordable. So normally when we talk about energy, it is not only the energy availability, but its accessibility, affordability, and reliability. Mm -hmm. You are absolutely correct. There is an energy gap all over the content. And this is why NEPAD, from its end, works very hard to fill this gap through focusing on regional energy project, both on generation and both on the transmission as well. So we are developing a strategic business plan for a continental transmission network where we can generate energy efficiently and in aff affordably in any place of Africa and we transmit it where it is needed. This is the approach on the continental level on how can we make energy available to the bulk of the African population in an affordable means. We'll and be getting we, uh, careers. We'll be getting into the how and some of the plans okay. you've got, uh, you know, in, to, uh, in just a bit. But uh, let's take a look, uh, first of all, at the deficit. At this stage okay. of the game, how much of a deficit needs to be plugged here? Actually, when you talk about the deficit, varies from one country to another. There's countries who have got surplus in energy generation. There's countries which has got deficit in energy generation. There's countries where energy access reaches 97% like North Africa. There's countries where energy access is less than 2%. Imagine in every 200, there's only two have got access. On average, the energy accessibility all over all Africa, if we take an average, about 40%. So there is still two thirds of the African population don't have energy access. Just to give you an idea on the gap. Mm -hmm. Now we talked about industrialization force, industrial revolution. Now, I'm not quite sure where many of us know what the fourth industrial revolution knows. I mean, what does it mean? I mean, just in a very simple term, fourth industrial revolution, it built on what we call it third industrial revolution, which was knowledge and information technology. The fourth industrial revolution is simply geared and driven by the massive and significant development in what we call it digital technology. Mm -hmm. Now we have got small IC 
integrated circuit which has got massive processing uh, ability, massive storage, what we used to really store in mainframe, which takes rooms. Now you've got a small mobile, which you can store all this information in it. This industrial revolution actually, which means it will affect the way we deal as individual, you and me, the, the way we deal with each other, it affects affect the industry, it will affect the commerce, it will affect all sorts of life because it is opening now new avenues. We talk about artificial intelligence mm -hmm. where there is what we call it uh, voice recognition. While I'm here, I can communicate right through that simple mobile, I can communicate with my actually accounts in UK or in the state and do transactions in my own comfort at home. Not only that, there are so many applications here which can make you do, I mean, the teleconferencing. Yeah. You don't need to travel that way. Now we talk about the uh, driverless cars that are heading to really produce cars which has no drivers, the drone plane which you hear about. So it is really changing the whole process of environment, the whole process of production. It's, it's going to really change the way we live. I mean, at okay. present, you know. So that a topic <laughs> in itself altogether. That's but uh, let's take a look at how this uh, impacts because it's the context and mm. it's in this context that you've developed an agenda as far as the implementation of energy projects is concerned. So you've got the infrastructure development uh, program in yeah. play at, uh, at the moment. What's the plan you've tabled? Yeah, actually what we have, we have a massive infrastructure energy project which it's a continental on the continental level it has got 15 energy generation projects or actually 15 projects nine of them are energy generation and the nine of them are low carbon technologies mm -hmm. they are all on the hydropower and this nine generation project which are hydro are distributed all over Africa. And then we have got four transmission corridors, which links Egypt from the top up to South Africa. And then cuts across from West Africa, Senegal, going all the way up to Ghana. And then there's a North Africa corridor, which link Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and there is a Central Africa corridor, which you start from Angola, going all the way to South Africa, and it goes upward up to uh, Cameroon and the Chad. These are four corridors, and there are nine generation project on the heavy infrastructure, yeah. energy generation. And once this project actually are implemented, it will play significant role in closing the energy gap. Closing the energy gap, but what kind of buy-in are you getting from investors? How are you rating investor appetite? Because the figure that's being bandied about is anything between $20 billion and $42 billion yearly over the next 10 years in order to deal with this uh, energy deficit. Absolutely correct. The size of the investment required is huge. And the public sector cannot meet actually that level of investment. This is why we call upon the private sector to come in what we call it a smart public private 
partnership. And I do emphasize on the word the smart. Mm -hmm. As you know, the, the private sector has got their own demand. The public sector, of course, have got their own priorities. And we need to manage the two of them and in a smart partnership where each party will actually win. Are investors buying into it though? Right, investors have got their demand. And this is not actually unusual. They require certain requirement for them to invest. In some countries, this requirement are met and they are happily investing. Mm -hmm. In some other countries are not. And there's many examples where the private sector came with full force and they invest. I take South Africa, for example, the renewable energy programs here, investment from inside the country and outside the country is massive. But there's some other countries not. You ask me why? Why it was successful in South Africa? Because you see any project, if there is no strong political buying and support, yeah. things don't really move Absolutely. with speed. Well, let's leave it there, Mossad. Thanks so much for having joined us in studio today. Of course, that Professor Mossad El Messiri, who's a senior energy advisor at NEPAD. And that's uh, some of the investment landscape we're looking at right now. Within that context, Botswana, of course, is considered one of the most economically stable Southern African nations for a classified upper middle income country. But even it still struggles with frequent blackouts, pushing the country to rely on imports from neighboring countries and on expensive diesel generation. Generators too. Last month, however, its state utility, the Botswana Power Company, said that it would be investing close to $500 million on the Northwest Transmission Grid Connection in a bid at strengthening the electricity network and growing the country's econo economy rather, in various sectors. CEO Stefan Swartzfischer joins us on the line now to give us a better sense of what's in place. Stefan, thanks so much for your uh, time this afternoon. Uh, right at the top, take us through what's in the pipeline here and why you targeting the Northwest District in particular? Okay, so first of all, good afternoon. And I'm not quite sure if you hear feedback or not. Um, so We've got you loud and clear, Stefan, so you can continue. Okay, that's great. Um, so having said that, um, let's start a little bit. Um, you made an introduction statement. Where, where is Botswana when it comes to power security? Uh, first of all, I, um, I think we all should note uh, that there is no load shading within uh, Botswana. And we didn't have any load shading within the last three years. So we have enough capacities actually to provide Botswana with our own um, electricity and we produce enough power to, produce, uh, to, to, to do that. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is we reduce the power imports, especially the one from South Africa, uh, quite significantly um, during the last 24 months. Mm -hmm. um, so that means we only use South African electricity during peak hours, which means probably we, we are importing 66% or 8% of our power right now for South Africa in peak times and during normal hours we also export power to the Southern African uh, power pool. So from that perspective, I think we are quite stable. Um, nevertheless, the major challenge PPC is facing um, as the fully integrated utility uh, in Botswana. Uh, the major challenge is that we need to make greener impact now, which means now we need to shift a little bit from our coal-fired power plants, mostly A and B, towards uh, a more solar-based environment. 
And in doing so, we are investing quite a lot in solar uh, over the next two years. So we established a program of um, just adding 200 megawatts on additional capacities. One uh, will be a 100 megawatt solar power plant yeah. um, in Botswana, and the other one will be smaller grid type uh, power plants. So having, having said that, I think that's the challenges that we are missing. And when it comes to the Northwestern Transmission Line, I think that was your second question. When it comes to the Northwestern Transmission Line, this is, this is a project of roughly 500 million US dollars, uh, which we just kick-started. That means uh, we just had the groundbreaking uh, ceremony. And the expectation of that is that in the northern part of Botswana, um, there are a lot of in, um, new mines coming up. And we need to provide power to these mines. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the tourist industry in this re uh, region is also growing fast. So in order to provide power um, to all these new sector or additional sectors, um, we decided one year ago um, to establish a 400 kV line uh, from Palapa, where our power stations are, uh, mainly up to Maun, and yeah. then there's another one coming from Frenchtown to Kapa. Uh, Stefan, while that is the plan, uh, let's talk uh, tariffs here, because it sounds like a very high-demand region that you're going to be catering to. What have you based your tariff structure potentially on, and what are we looking at uh, down the road from a, a cost perspective for those users? Well, um, we define our, our tariffs to our consumers in, in generally in five categories. Uh, where the end consumer is actually getting the lowest tariff, um, and then the commercial uh, client is paying an average tariff, and the government is actually paying the highest one. Um, all our tariffs are subsidized right now by government. Um, that means we still are in a position, or not in a position, where we have cost-reflective tariffs. It is BPC's strategy now to overcome that issue within the next five years. Is that and subsidy from government sustainable, Stefan? No, of course not. Well, oh, but I think the, the answer to that question is, yes, of course, government could provide us with subsidy uh, for the next five or six years. But I think it's BPC's opinion that a normal operating company should never rely on subsidy. And because of that, we are just making a huge effort in putting a restructuring, um, a restructuring uh, policy in place, which we call MASA 2020. And with this restructuring strategy, we're doing uh, a lot of cost reduction. Yeah. So, so probably 80% of the cost reduction in the future will come out of that MASA 2020 strategy, and 20% will come, unfortunately, out of a slight tariff increase um, over the next five years. Well, Stefan, thanks so much for having joined us on the line this evening. And, uh, of course, we'll be watching developments on that end as they unfold. That was Stefan Swash-Fisher, who's CEO of the Botswana Power Corp Corporation. Up next, renewable energy is, of course, the fastest growing industry globally. And we'll be getting to grips with the extent to which Africa's jumped onto that bandwagon in just a bit. So stay with us.
Well, for the most part, state-owned companies are still the predominant energy providers on the continent, and their dominance, along with insufficient regulatory or policy frameworks to support a broadening of the sector, and the absence of cost-reflective tariff structures has left little room for the private sector to help alleviate the pressure. But renewable energy options are gaining traction. Whether it's to the extent we should be seeing is another question altogether. And uh, Karen Surridge Talbot, who's the manager at the Renewable Energy Center of Research, and development joins me now to detail the kind of evolution we are seeing. Thanks so much, Karen, for your time today. We talk about the strong demand scenario for energy supply and Africa's inability to actually cater uh, to that demand. How much of a solution, how much impetus is this lending the renewable energy space? Thank you, Alicia. Well, of course, in the renewable energy space, um, you're looking at being able to operate in a space where you can have mini-grids or off-grid situations and still provide electricity. One of the things in Africa, of course, is the grid infrastructure, um, if you want to go sort of large-scale grid-connected electrical. So looking at things like mini-grids and hybrids, um, even hybrid systems and any off-grid so solutions is always a, a good possibility to explore. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the stride that is being made, but uh, you know, what role is and what role could renewable energy be playing in, uh, in Africa? And I guess the, there is quite a distinction to be made between the two. Well, as you've seen, there's been a big uptake of renewable energy in the whole world mm -hmm. um, over the last, well, at least decade, if not more. Um, in Africa, we are blessed in that we have so many natural resources. We have wind, we have sun, we have water, north of South Africa, um, you know, that we can explore. One of the things that's a, a big plus for us here in South Africa is that our resources are quite distributed. So, you know, where we have sun, um, sort of in the Northern Cape, we have wind along the coastlines. Mm -hmm. So being able to plug into those um, uh, potential energy resources and actually then use them for supplying energy into different places is a big benefit. Um, and of course, across Africa, that's something that we can be looking at as well. And there's a lot of hydro north of South Africa, um, you know, that's, that's looking at renewable energy resources as well. So renewable energy is definitely something that can start supplying energy needs, um, whether it's into a new uh, area where you're actually going to be supplying it for the first time or whether you're actually plugging into an existing grid, mm -hmm. which is what we're doing in South Africa. But it's not being leveraged off, uh, you know, to the extent that it should be, especially as you say, given the abundance of uh, natural resources we have at our disposal. So what's impeding the development we should be seeing? Um, I think it would be two things. First one would be financing. It costs a lot of money. Everybody always says, you know, the sun is free, the wind is free. It is free, but harnessing it is not. So um, you, you need financing and you need um, people with that kind of financial backing to be able, companies with that kind of financial backing to be able to roll out this kind of infrastructure that you're wanting to see on a large scale. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, of course, is the infrastructure itself, the grid infrastructure. So if you're wanting to roll out large scale grid infrastructure, it costs a lot of money and it's going to take a lot of time to do it, um, and especially into Africa. So that's why, of course, once again, the, the mini-grid and um, sort of off-grid options also would really address a need into Africa. How much is inadequate policy framework actually hindering things on this front? I'm going to give a, a real government answer. It depends. <laughs> 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 and um, it's really because um, I don't think we have inadequate policy structure here in South Africa. I cannot comment for the other African countries. If you look at the Renewable Energy Independent Power Procurement Program, which is being run through our Department of Energy, there's been massive investment into renewable energies in the country. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, of course, and, and this has been climbing, um, there's been slight delays with, of course, the, the signing of the power purchase agreements. But I think the policy has been held worldwide as one of the best for implementing renewable energies into an existing grid system. But it's the actual it implementation that's experiencing the hurdles. Um, yes, in terms of, as I said, the signatures and so forth. But those that are already on grid, um, in fact, we have almost three gigawatts already on grid, uh, three gigs that's already on, on grid, um, that's actually prevented load shedding in the last two to three years by having that already online. Yeah. And we have another six that's due to come online as soon as those are signed and, and construction can take place. Also something people need to consider is timeframes. You can't sign it today and tomorrow you have a power plant. Mm -hmm. The power plants take time to build <laughs> and infrastructure. Especially where it's still being met in some quarters by resistance. I mean, this is a very much a socio-political hot potato in developing countries with uh, the coal industry having offered the traditional energy solutions so far and with job creation very much linked uh, to coal mining. So uh, to what extent are you seeing resistance on that front? simply because of the potential perceived job loss implications? Um, so there has been this, um, you can see the resistance a little bit, what's been coming up in South Africa as well, but one needs to consider um, the coal industry is a fossil fuel industry. Fossil fuels are finite fuels. We will run out of them. So what we need to do is start looking for other energy sources and that will create jobs. Now the other energy sources we're looking at at the moment to address um, what our obligations are globally um, and, and as a nation to our planet to keep it going is to look at um, re introducing renewables. Now, if we introduce renewables, it means we use less fossils. So our fossils will last longer, which means those job losses will, will not be taking place immediately because you'll be seeing fossils and renewables. So you'll see jobs coming into renewables and you'll still see the fossil fuel sector carrying us on base load. So it's about the energy mix that yes. comes to the fore at the end yes. of the day. Having said that, from an investor perspective, it's got to make investment sense. And in most instances, tariff levels have simply not been uh, you know, cost reflective. So there's the question around business viability that needs to be considered, even if uh, SOEs and governments come to the party and invite the private sector participation, surely. So this is where our renewable energy independent power procurement program has actually really come, you know, blossomed and come to the fore is that they've allowed companies to be able to bid in at a tariff that would work for them. So they wouldn't be bidding if it wasn't working in their business model. And those companies that are then accepted into this as pre pre preferred um, suppliers are obviously the ones that are going to be financially able to carry it and to, to plug into the grid and build that infrastructure. Well, Karen, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for having joined us in studio this Thank evening. Of course, Karen Saraj Talbot is manager at the Renewable Energy Center of Research and Development. And on that note, that's where we leave things with you for this evening. But you can catch us same time, same place next week for your monthly wrap of news and market moves that have grabbed attention. From me, Alicia Seckham, and the rest of the team, it's goodbye for now.